Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Good evening. Welcome to Wednesday night on the night that the Royals win. So, yeah, thank you for being faithful and coming. And maybe hearing about the game at the uh, very end, if that's uh, something that you were really interested in. I'd like to welcome you to our evening tonight. We're going to be talking about time primarily. Um, if you have any questions, you're welcome to uh, write those questions out and send those. And we will answer those at the end rather than at the beginning. Mark is going to do most of our speaking to us tonight. He's got some things that he wants to do. And then we'll have some Q&A with Mark and me if we have those uh, a little bit later tonight. Uh, but I'd like for you, first of all, to uh, get up and introduce yourself to somebody who's here. And after that, we'll have our opening prayer. So make yourself friendly. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. Mark, come on up here. Would you, um, Mark doesn't ever know I'd do this. Would you express your appreciation to Mark for being our preacher? And um, would, you, would you join me in a prayer for the evening and for his leadership as well? Lord, thank you so much that you have seen in your wisdom to do something here in Ornogo. And as a body of believers, we are grateful that your truth um, is something that is preached and taught, and we try to live it. And we're thankful for this series that lets us talk about issues that are very personal and close to us. And we thank you for um, the leaders that have put this together. Tonight, Lord, we ask your blessing on Mark as he is our primary speaker to um, help for us to understand more about time and um, help for us, Lord, to redeem that time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. Hey, hopefully you have an outline. Um, there's some information I've put on there. I got too much material to cover uh, in the 65 or so minutes that's allotted here, and I don't say that as a complaint, it'll explain the detailed outline that you have available to you because there's going to be passages of Scripture and some other information that I may not actually uh, use uh, in this presentation, but I want you to have it available to you so you understand the background and the foundation on which I'm teaching. Does that make sense? Um, and I was corrected on Sunday. I keep saying, shake your head, and I was told, why don't I ask you to nod? So now, since you don't talk back to me, if I say not, if you agree, then you'll know where I'm headed with that. Okay, so my assignment tonight is simplicity and balance. Uh, I've asked my wife not to attend because she would make fun of me for even attempting to teach on this. Uh, a, I'm not a simple person. I'm very complex, and uh, balance is not natural for me. Uh, I love to work. I love what I get to do. Uh, so for you folks to be gracious and thank me for being your preacher, I would cry if you didn't let me. Uh, and my wife's like, you'd work all day. It doesn't feel like work, but balance is important. I'm going to hearken back to what uh, Mr. DeFazio said a few weeks ago. If you don't get work, play, and rest figured out, you're out of balance, if I can paraphrase. And that's where we're heading tonight. Now, what I wanted to do was to have a very simple 10 or 15-minute explanation of simplicity and balance, and that's a joke. Because there's a difference between living simply and that being simply done. Does it make sense? Living simply is a discipline. So what I'm going to talk to you tonight in very practical terms is what do the scriptures show us 
that we need to do to find this level of balance. If you look at where we've been through this whole series, whether you've seen it or not, I want you to understand that there has been a step-by-step process to building a worldview that can be lived out. Our first three or four sessions all dealt with the theology, the theory of how or knowing what God expects of us, and then the rest of it has all been steps we can take to experience that. You see, what I love about God is God doesn't ask you to just obey so you can be obedient. God asks us to obey so our faith can be demonstrated and our love can be felt and experience his love in our obedience. I think some of the greatest blessings we miss in life is, is found in our disobedience because it doesn't allow God to bring good things upon us. Now, you'll also know, and, I, and I'm unashamed to say this so we can build this foundation, I want to be clear that I don't think every blessing of God is for another thing. I think, I think sometimes the best blessings of God is when he takes something away from us. If he takes away a crutch and teaches us how to walk on, our, on the strength that he gives us. Okay, not if that makes sense. So with all of this laid out in front of us, I want to talk about the fact that simplicity is freedom. It refuses to be a slave to anything but God. And so when you want to define what it means to be simple, I'm going to talk about a few things in light of Sunday morning when I talk to you about time, that my fear is you can walk out of just Sunday morning saying, I need to do better. And I will ask you the question, why? And what does do better mean? Does it mean you give more time to God? I could go home right now uh, and say to my wife after church is over, I could say to Heather, you know what? I'm going to give you an extra hour tomorrow. I don't think she'd be really thrilled. She'd go, well, why? Well, because I'm going to be a blessing. Yeah, all the women are laughing. All the guys are going, great idea. No, it's not. If I'm available to her 24 hours a day and she can call and say, I need you to come home or I need to talk to you, that's what she wants from me as a connection, not 60 minutes to validate my presence. Make sense? So when we talk about giving God our time, Sunday morning showed us that time belongs to God and there's a purpose for it. But I want to talk about our soul tonight. God wants all of you, not 60 minutes of attention, a dictated prayer, an X amount of verses read. God wants to have a life with you, an experience with you, what Scott McKnight calls a with God existence. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And it might, might shock you uh, what that looks like. But I want to do a little pop quiz. I know you're excited about this. Uh, just talk to two or three people around you. You can work in a group. Tell me what the last three commandments are. Go ahead. Discuss amongst yourselves. All right, anybody want to venture? Can you, pardon? Frank obviously studies from the King James. Oh, I thought the sex talk was going to be awkward. All right. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not 
commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Okay? Now listen to what, just follow with me here. This was pointed out uh, by Scott McKnight. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not steal. That's about power, sex, and money. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? God knew what the trip triggers for all of us would be. Power, thou shalt not kill, control. Sex, adultery, steal, money, possessions, treasure. How are we going to live simply in this world? Uh, we've already talked about sex, so tonight we're going to talk about money, and we're going to talk about the power in relationships. If you want balance and simplicity, the Bible is full of examples of this, and so I want to show you. Let's begin by talking about simply riches. 1 Timothy 6, which is provided in your note sheet. If not, go ahead and turn your Bibles to it. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Paul writes, uh, in, we're going to use two pieces of chapter 6. In verse 6 he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Interesting. I'll jump down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What Paul is teaching here in its context is very important. Taken out of its context, it can be used as a soundbite that's inaccurate to Bible. I believe most of us, if we took a pop quiz on comprehension, would answer something along the lines, money is not a good thing. That's not biblically true. Wealth is a curse. That's not biblically true. Wealth is the root of all evil. Not biblically true. What does the Bible tell us in this passage? What is, Timoth or what is Paul telling this young preacher that he needs to warn people about? How do we live simply with wealth? How do we retain balance in our life with wealth? Do you, how many of you think that wealth is a bad thing? I'm glad none of us raised our hands because most of us are pursuing it. If we believed that theology, when our boss said, I'd like to give you a raise, we'd go, oh, don't curse me. <laughs> no, instead we're like, is that all? Okay, so the principles behind this are we're called to a simpler lifestyle. And we're to use that wealth that we have to be a blessing, to be rich in good deeds. And sometimes you have to have coin to do that. So let's shake off all the feeling that if I've been blessed or I'm, I'm longer in my career and I'm starting to have this weird American concept of disposable income, there should be no shame associated with that. You can live a godly life. Abraham, at his richest moment, was called by God. Joseph of Arimathea was a great blessing to the kingdom for the way he treated Jesus upon his crucifixion. And the reason he was able to do that was because he was a wealthy person. Now, what I need to say from the very beginning is the word rich uh, is uh, a subjective term, isn't it? Uh, if my statistics are true that I found on the internet, and all of it is, isn't it? <laughs> that if you make more than $30,000 a year, you're in the 3% richest people in the world. 
it's a poverty level stance in the States. But if you took your $30,000 you make in the States and you go live in other parts of the world, you would be considered one of the upper echelon of having resources. Now, I know anytime you use a stat like that, it can be shot to pieces. But I'm trying to make the bigger point is that before we say, yeah, those rich people, be very, very careful. Because in context, we are, we're all well-to-do for the most part. Maybe not all of us, but the largest percentage in this room is. So what is the context here? Paul is addressing a heresy, and I have to give you this background for it to make sense. Hopefully, if you stay with me, when we get to the end, you'll see what we did here. The context of 1 Timothy in this particular case was a number of teachers that were saying anything physical is bad. Any use of your body, any desire your body has is abnormal and you should deny it. Any pleasure that you receive from food or drink or sexual relations or relationships or accomplishment, anything that's related to your flesh is evil. And Paul was dismantling that argument. Because God made us, we've been talking about it for three weeks now, so let's just say it very simply. God put our soul encased in a body. They are not in opposition to one another naturally. There are desires of the flesh that war against the soul. We know that. But the soul can overcome the flesh, and the flesh in and of itself is not evil. It's not unnecessary. It's a natural part of God's creation. But when you look at verse 17 of 1 Timothy 4, it says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So a little pop quiz again. You can answer this or not. When you see someone cold in the middle of When's it get cold here? In February. If you see someone standing outside and they're standing at a, I don't, we have bus stops, I'll make this up. If we had a bus stop in Orinoco, which would be really funny, and you went by and saw someone shivering, a little kid waiting for their school bus, freezing on a February morning, what does your natural instinct tell you to do? And it's not yell at their parents. What's your natural instinct say? Give them a coat. What would that require of you? money or sparing some of your excess riches and it would be a material possession right and isn't that what the lord would have us to do okay if you see saw if you saw someone hungry what would your natural instinct loving act be to bring them food which is a material possession which feeds the physical body right and yet would that be honoring to the lord if you saw someone sick what would you do Got real quiet. Let them die. I don't know. It's a rough crowd. No, you'd find a doctor, right? Or you'd see if you can buy a medicine. And uh, I was teaching at the Bible College in Michigan, and this kid knocked on my door. And I was uh, serving as the dean of students at the time, as well as teaching. And he knocked on my door, and Monty can relate to this. He, I said, "What's the matter?" And he said, "One of our kids from Kenya is really sick, and the doctor's office won't see her. What do you do? Pray." Now you put her in my truck and we go down to the doctor's office and we explain she's on an international visa and he needs to open the door and give her medicine. And he looked at me and he said, we close at six. And I said, she's sick. She has strep throat. We just found out about this. She has, he goes, I'm sorry, we close at six. And I was frustrated. So I said, her name was Esther. And I said, all right, Esther, we'll go try somewhere else. And as I started to leave his office, I heard him say these words, I'll see you at 602. What just happened there? He couldn't see her when? Under office hours. But when his office was closed, 
the humanity came out of him and he took her back in his office and he gave her medicine and he saw her for two or three weeks and I found out later he was a good Christian doctor. But it took physical effort and physical resources and a physical reaction. You're with me, right? If you separate your riches from the good that they can do, you're biblically handling your treasures differently than you ought to. Because they are given to us by God and he has gifted us to be useful. Listen to what James 2 says. If you see a person without food, without clothing, and you say, go and be warmed and, and filled, how is the love of God expressed in you? 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Both cases that James and John make is a response from our riches. So riches are not evil in and of themselves. They have been given to us for a purpose, and they're not been given for us to keep only for ourselves. I'll go back to a principle that I was taught by my grandparents, and I'll hold to this day until I'm corrected. And so far, I'm not trying to be right, but no one showed me different. Every gift that God's given me is good if it's given to other people. And most of God's gifts are wrongful and hurtful when kept for myself only. So you can ponder that. Test that out your own way. Because the Bible says, you know, test the prophets. And then uh, I read something that Dr. Tim Keller said. He said, if you look at the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, Ephesians 4, and Romans 12, he said there are two kinds of gifts. I've never seen them broken up this way, but I liked it. He said there are word gifts that have to do with teaching and edifying and encouraging and, and upholding and exhorting. And then there are action gifts which require doing and giving and blessing. I thought that was a fascinating division between the gifts. And if you'll notice, whenever the misuse of our spiritual gifts is presented in the Bible, it's always by people being selfish with those gifts instead of serving with those gifts. So, do you believe, and this is, a, this is one of the things that each one of us has to ask, answer in our heart. Do you believe that God has given us everything richly to enjoy? And by everything, I mean everything. Time, life, family, the ability to make money, the ability to care for your family, the ability to care for your neighbor. So how do we live simply? I'd like to review verses 17 through 19 again. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, here's what I want to free the room for and encourage you with. My understanding of Scripture, nowhere in the Bible does it say, give all your wealth away. But it does say, use your wealth strategically. Often if you hear someone preach in Acts chapter 4, they talk about the early church and they said they sold everything and had everything in common. If I understand that correctly, that didn't mean that nobody had personal possessions. It means they used what they had to bless people who didn't have. But it also says in the Bible that a person who doesn't take care of their family is worse than a sinner, correct? So having, having been in a Bible college for a season, maybe the Ozark people would disagree, maybe it's not present there, but it was where I taught at Great Lakes, and I loved my peers that I worked with, my colleagues, but there were a bunch of them who thought if you drove, if you ever drove a new vehicle, you just love Satan. 
If you had a nice home, you didn't care about the poor. If you had new clothing or you took a vacation, that you were, should feel ashamed that you weren't taking care. And I want us to be really careful about what the Bible teaches about wealth, about riches, because you can be a blessing in multiple ways, but the Bible never says to give away your wealth. It says, command the rich in this present world to be rich in good deeds. Use the opportunities, just like we talked on Sunday, use the opportunities of time well, because God has given us all things to be richly enjoyed. John Newton, and he was the person who wrote Amazing Grace and several other hymns that are sung in churches yet today. He's, he was asked a question by a, a, a series of letters that have been recorded in a book. He was asked a question about what, what is, how much does a person give away before they can start holding for themselves? And Newton said this. He said, divide the things in your life into three categories. And I've listed them there on your sheet. The first is necessities. And then he said, and then list conveniences and luxuries. Okay? A necessity is how you live in order to be safe. Room, shelter, provision, medicine, clothing. You guys get that, right? Those are the things that the Bible says that each person needs. So you need to identify what you do. And this is John Newton's formula. I thought it was fascinating. Look at necessities and ask yourself, how do you live in order to be safe? And then you put down your conveniences and luxuries. These are the things that just make you more comfortable than you necessarily need. Cable, internet, iPhone 6, nothing wrong with any of those. I mean, like, oh, no, nothing wrong with any of those. Okay, but what Newton said is after you've listed your necessities and you've looked at your conveniences and luxuries, he said, spend a dollar on the poor for every dollar you spend on your conveniences and luxuries. That would be called balance. It would be saying to your children, we could take a nice vacation, but we're going to spend as much that we spend on a vacation to bless someone in our community who doesn't have shoes or doesn't, can't have an education, or we're going to sponsor a kid to play youth, youth baseball who couldn't afford the registration. Or You guys get it. Nod your head, right? Isn't that a fascinating challenge? Now, what's the hesitancy? I am so neck deep in debt. Right? This is what we've done to ourselves. Our riches have turned into more luxuries and uh, conveniences. So what do we do? We work today forward on living a balanced, simple life. That we are going to make sure that we honor God with our riches, both in our own home and extended outside of our home. And so I thought Newton's challenge was for me personally something that I sat down and I've spent about three hours in the last week writing down the things that I spend. And we, Heather and I are redoing our personal budget right now uh, with, you know, um, with the return campaign and everything else. We're visiting, how are we doing? We're not doing so well. Oh, no, we're doing really well. But as far as living out that balance that we wanted in our life, we have found that the luxuries have spoken louder than other people's necessities. And so, as I said on Sunday, not to keep quoting myself, but to remind you, this is not a room of shame. This is a room of repentance. And repentance says, I can do better. By God's word and with God's help, I can do better. And so that's what we're after when we talk about this. Proverbs 19.17, is that there in your notes? Good. I didn't know this, and I was led in one of our uh, commentaries to read this. Proverbs 19.17, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will reward him for what he's done. I had never seen that proverb before. That he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. 
Now, how many of you believe that if you lend to the Lord, he'll repay? I think he's pretty good at that, right? He'll never take bankruptcy on us. He's going to do what he's going to do. So the simpler lifestyle that the one you're in now is to measure your conveniences and luxury and not feel shame about those. But make sure that that is a balanced life. Uh, Somebody said recently, and I I didn't want to agree with it, but the more I thought about it, I was like, darn it. And their reaction was that most of these time-saving luxuries in our life are not time-saving. My phone would save me a lot of time if I wasn't spending two hours a day staring at it. But I'm constantly looking at it and saying, I've got this and I've got this and cool, what's on Twitter? And I got to check, you know, the Royals won, yay. And then I got to text five people, the Royals won, yay. You know, I got to do all this stuff. I got to say, go Giants. I got to put all that stuff out there for folks. Hey, this is not a place of shame. Repent. It's okay. It's okay. Two to one. Okay, so I know they're going to win the series. I'm going to have to put up with all of you. I did it to myself. Lord, I'm sorry. Okay, so balance. Is God calling us to not enjoy a good meal? Church, talk to me. Is God saying, don't take a vacation? Drive a dependable vehicle? To have a nice home? No. To have a swimming pool? No. To buy your kids a puppy? No. You're like, no. God wants me to have a puppy. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. But it's balance. It's balance. Are those things giving you the opportunity to honor God? It goes back to time. It's the balance of our most precious commodities, time, treasure, and ultimately talent. And the Bible doesn't use guilt. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. This is one of the blessings of what God gives us. He blesses to be a blessing. So what I want to do is be real practical here, and I know that it's all written out for you, so you don't have to fill any blanks if, I'm, if I remember that correctly. But I want to talk about what it looks like. Because I'm fearful that you're going to leave here tonight going, okay, theoretically, Mark convinced me that I could give more to other people balanced on how much I keep for myself, that there is a fair balance and simplicity to this life. But what does that look like? This is adapted from Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. First thing, buy things for their usefulness rather than for their status. Okay, now I know you all aren't 16 years old. This probably resonates more across the parking lot at the SMC, but I know it still rings true here. If you wonder the truth of this, ask yourself the question, when was the last time you bought something to impress somebody else and they weren't? Have you had that moment in your life? We're all adults, right? We've all bought something that we thought everyone would go, wow, that's pretty awesome, and they just kind of looked at it and went, yeah, yeah, and you still had to make the payments. Now, Heather and I came up with a rule, and we took this from a married couple in our uh, at our college, they sat us down and they said, we, we always tell each other that if it's ever over $100, and this was in the 80s, said if it's ever over $100, we won't make the purchase unless we both agreed on it. And Heather and I laughed because we just don't buy things over $100 because we never agree. She'll come home and say, I got two of these. I'm like, we don't need one of those. And then it's a fight. She takes it back. We don't talk for a week. It's a time-saving effort. It really is. <laughs> but we had to be in agreement because there are certain things I have to have And my wife looks at me and goes, you didn't know we have two of those in the closet. Makes sense, right? Second thing, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. (whistles) Cable? Internet? Do you know what? Do you guys remember when we lived great without the internet? Remember those days? I remember dial-up. I remember our youth minister would be on, and I would say, I need it. And I'd hear him click, and then my mom would go, (whistles) 
and it would come on. I remember those days. I remember the days before, and I'm not making light of it, but there are a lot of necessities. My son's like, the internet's down. Yeah, read a book. In fact, it's pretty good about once a month when the internet goes down because we realize what life was like before we had to have everything. So what's the addiction? Coffee, television, newspapers, chocolate. I could keep picking at your nerves all night long. Okay. Third, develop a habit of giving things away. Um, I love closet cleaning. I'm an organized junkie. Uh, I love a good Saturday when we go through a room and get rid of stuff we've never used. I've done a lot of that, and Heather has no idea. <laughs> I tell you what, my girl saves everything. But I'm all about deaccumulate. If we haven't used it since we moved from Michigan, let's give it to somebody who can use it. And I don't want a dime for it. If I have a friend who can use it, let's give it. I'm not noble, but I want it out of my house. There's a selfish motive and there's a godly motive. Put it in the hands of somebody who can use it. A man named Bill Walker in Mount Pleasant, Michigan said this to me one day. I said, I need a chainsaw. And Bill's like, why do you need a chainsaw? I was like, what are you, dumb? Take down a tree? I said, a tree fell in my backyard. He goes, oh, you don't need a chainsaw. I said, well, I'm not doing it with the saw. And he goes, I've got a chainsaw. And I was like, well, good for you, Bill. <laughs> I didn't realize what he was saying to me. What was he saying to me? First of all, he wouldn't let me use a chainsaw because deep inside he thought I'd come back without a leg. That was kind of debilitating for my ego. But he's like, ah, we'll come over. Next thing you know, three guys from their church, all retired age, came with their chainsaws. I think they just were looking for an excuse to use them. And they all showed up in my yard, and they cut it up, and they split the logs, and they stacked them, and they taught me how to build a fire. And it was very humiliating. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I don't need a chainsaw. If you've got one, then we're brothers, right? You see how this works? And then instead of saying, well, I just saved 250 bucks on the chainsaw. How about I take half of that that I was willing to spend on something I didn't need and put it to somebody who needs it? Like right here, right now, or one of your favorite charities. You guys get how this works. All right. Four, learn to enjoy things without owning them. Five, look with the healthy skepticism at the buy now, pay later schemes. Oh, guys, this is biblical. Foster's dead on on this. If you can't afford it today, what makes us think we can afford it tomorrow when it costs even more? My dad used to do that to us all the time. I would say, Dad, uh, I need to borrow money for a mini bike. I remember this conversation distinctly. And he said, you know, it was one of those don't tell your mom stories. And I said, Dad, I got a mini bike. The guy wants $35 for it. I have $20 in the bank. Can I borrow $15? And my dad says, well, no, I'm not going to loan you money. And I said, Dad, I'll pay you back this amount, this amount, this amount. And my dad said, okay. If you're going to borrow that money from me and it's going to take you this long to pay it back, is that mini bike worth $65? And I went, no. And he said, then you can't afford it. Because by the time you pay me back and you get the gas for it and you get it repaired, it's going to cost you $65. He showed me the reality. We have done that with both of our children. If you go ahead and buy that on interest, it's going to cost you this much after three years. Is it still worth it? And when we all carry out the reality, why is it that we don't buy things? because the value of it isn't there. Six, reject anything that will breed the oppression of others. This is a real contemporary thing. This is in the new edition of the Celebration of Discipline. Foster didn't have it in his first. It's kind of interesting. This is what he says. Is a, in a world of limited resources, does our lust for wealth mean the poverty for others? I hadn't thought about this much till I was traveling with Andy Hansen back there, and I was at a CIY, and I was hanging out with a couple of Bible college kids that were green. And I mean green like save the ecology green. And I made the stupid comment because I talked too much. I was complaining about the price of gas. 
and I walked out of the gas station with a bottle of water. And he said, you just complained about a $3.50 for a gallon of gas, and you're paying 8 bucks a gallon for water that's free. Like, wow, that's dumb. Shouldn't have done that. So in a world that sensitive issues in today's Christian's face, is our saving money repressing somebody else in the world? Those are things I think Christians need to think about. I don't want to go too far with that and become legalistic. I hope you understand the heart of it. We need to make big decisions with what we do with the big things God gives us. And then shun whatever would distract you from your main goal. Ask yourself the big question we talked about uh, Sunday. Why are you spending your time, your treasures, and your talents on that? And I think you have to be a little bit careful that you don't leave that up to everyone's opinion because we, I could take one row and I could throw five items out and we would never get a unanimous decision. You guys get that, right? There's a conviction of the spirit in each one of our hearts. Some of us would say that bottled water idea was absolutely stupid, Mark, but I was convicted by that. that but I really want to pay $8 a gallon for, for water when I can go drink out of a water fountain or whatever the case may be. My personal conviction doesn't have to be yours. But let's ask ourselves the big questions. If you want balance in your life and you get to spend your time, treasure, and talents the way you want to, are you choosing that or is it being chosen for you? This is the question. This, this is what we're going to be talking about Sunday and the following Wednesday and as we proceed. So I didn't want to ride that horse around too much longer, so let's jump to the next section here. Wealth is a very personal thing, but even as we talked about Sunday, time is even more personal. So how are we going to be simply deliberate? What do we do to gain a worldview perspective to keep this sharp? I don't think any of us woke up one day in our life and said, you know what, I want to disregard what the Bible teaches, and I just want to do what feels good. I think every day we kind of slide away from the standards of God. Adam Scooty told me in my office about an hour ago, we were chatting, and he said he read something that said 85% of people who profess to be Christians believe that extramarital or premarital sex is okay under certain circumstances. I don't think that's anybody waking up and saying, God's wrong. I think what happens is we forget what God has said and why. It's the slow erosion of truth to make ourselves feel more comfortable about the choices we've already made. I do it. So I'm not looking down, even though I'm standing above you. I don't look down on anybody for that. I know how many times it's like, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but God really likes me. So he'll let me get away with that. But those other people, oh, shame, shame, shame. Deliberate choices. And I want to say this as a pastor. I don't say it to be correct. I say it because I truly do care. It's like my dad, this is going to hurt me more than you. But the truth is, our intoxication with busyness is sinful. Being so busy is a choice. It's not an excuse. And to find balance means we have to choose well. When busyness invades our ability to be with God, we're wrong. And you can justify those choices, but we have to make solid choices. We find no rest for our souls because we give our souls no rest. So what choices do we make? I think Chad Ragsdale said something that's been spinning in my head. I know he said it, but what he said has just been spinning for several weeks now. He said, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. Do you remember that? We think that the opposite of faith is wondering if God will be faithful. The only way you'll know God is to be faithful is to trust him. But certainty is when we think we have everything figured out. The battle against busyness can only be found on reliance on God. And trusting that even when the math doesn't measure up with our time, treasure, and talents, that God's faithful. 
So I think the opposite of busyness is not laziness. Uh, the opposite of busyness is retreat. It's to call a timeout. It's to recenter. It's, if you'll allow me to use an image, it's to be home. Uh, I, I love nothing more, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm an introvert, and by the time Friday comes, I have had so many people in my world that silence is one of the greatest gifts I get. And I love nothing more than when I say to Heather on a Thursday night, what do we have tomorrow? And she goes, uh, I don't think we have anything. I just want to hug the whole family. And I want to go home on a Friday night, and I just want to be in the living room, and we'll eat when we're hungry, and that's a lot. And if we want to watch television or get a movie or just hang out or just everyone do what they're going to I love that moment. Does that make sense to anybody else in the room? Why are we so passionate to be home? Because when we're home, we're what? We're not home. We're busy. We're producing. We're running around. We're, we're doing all of that. And those are choices we get to make. Don't feel shame, but ask yourself, are you controlling the time God's given you and using it to honor him? Or are other people's expectations controlling that from you? And that's where the joy is still. Remember that Satan has no new ideas. So what does he do? He counterfeits everything God came up with. God says, you need a Sabbath. We say, I'll be more productive. God says, you need rest. And you say, no, I'm, I can handle this. It's always just a small variation from God's principle. Or as we've said around here for many years now, Satan doesn't offer you something that's 90 degrees from God's truth. He offers you something that's one degree from God's truth. So he can simply stretch you away from God slowly but surely until we don't realize it. This is where balance and simplicity come into play. I want to take you to a passage in the Old, Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament book, Habakkuk. The verses are there in your notes. I was very blessed by this. It was in 2000, or, and I'm sorry, it was 1996. I was in California. I went to a convention, and I heard a preacher preach on this. And I took notes, and I have used this annually. So I share it with you. In Habakkuk 2, verses 1 and 2, taken from the TEV, and you can look at, the NIV is really close to this. This isn't such a variation that it's manipulating the text. I just, I like the wording it uses. It says, I will climb my watchtower and wait to see what the Lord will tell me to say and what answers he will give to my complaint. The Lord gave me this answer. Write down clearly on tablets what I reveal to you so that, I can, so that it can be read at a glance. This is an Old Testament prophet who is seeking a word from the Lord. And what he describes here is the process by which he received that word. I'd like to use that as a template for going forward to how we slow down and we protect our soul with balance. You want to know what God wants you to do with your finances? Ask him, don't ask me. You want to know what the Lord wants you to do with your time? Don't ask your preacher. Sit down and ask the Lord. I believe in a God who speaks in various ways. I've met people that swear to me God spoke out loud. Who am I to judge that? I know when I open my Bible, God says things to me I've never thought before, and I write them down. There are some people who get that in community. I believe in a God who speaks. I'm unashamed of that. And I believe that God speaks in multiple ways depending on the way he's wired us. You're like a radio, and there are certain signals you'll pick up that nobody around you will pick up. I believe we have to test the words we receive from God by the word of God, right? So not everybody who comes and says, well, the Lord told me this. Are you sure it's the Lord? Because the word of God will not contradict the will of God. But I think we need to open our hearts and our ears to a God who's speaking to us. And I want to share with you this snapshot of what it means to go home 
to find this balance and simplicity in life. And yes, I am suggesting that we do this daily, but I'm not a legalist. I had a young lady, a wonderful young lady, showed up from uh, Missouri State, and she asked if she could have an appointment, and she came in last week, and she was on break, and we had a wonderful conversation. And probably the favorite moment in the entire conversation was when she said to me, does God get mad when I don't read my Bible every day? And I said, no. But when you read your Bible, God wants you to connect to him, not to the book. So if you give God three days of sitting in his presence and talking to him about his word, and then you think about those conversations the rest of the week, that's a whole lot better than reading three verses a day, closing your Bible and saying, done. It's connecting. So how do we do this? First of all, withdraw. Habakkuk 2.1 uses an image found throughout the Old Testament, especially within the prophecies. I will climb my watchtower. That's a Hebrew word, it's a word picture of a place where you're focused on the horizon. You might remember the passage, I don't recall, someone help me. What's the passage of the old, is it Ezekiel where the prophet says that when they climb the watchtower, if they see the enemy approaching and they don't announce it to the city, the blood of those people is on their head. Is that Ezekiel? Okay, and that whole imagery is a responsibility to pull yourself from your environment and spend time out. I've never been a deer hunter, I'm a city kid. But an elder in Mount Pleasant back in Michigan Uh, He had a wonderful deer blind. About two or three times a year, he would call me and say, hey, let's go to breakfast. And I knew what that meant. He was going to pick me up at 4.30. He was going to have a big uh, thermos of coffee. I didn't drink it, but it sure smelled good. We would drive out in the dark of darks to this one little thing he had built out in the middle of a field, and he would give me a rifle. And I loved looking through the sight of that rifle as the sun came up. I never shot a deer. If I'd have seen one, I may have. I never saw one. But I could sit there with that gun sight in that warm little two-man shanty smelling that hot coffee with the cinnamon rolls his wife made us, and I could just sit through the side of that gun and look at the horizon. I don't know that I've ever worshipped in a more beautiful place. Withdraw from your environment so God can have your ultimate attention. Now, some of us know, if we're honest, finding a quiet place is close to impossible, isn't it? We don't live in a, in a place of quiet. Uh, I queried some of my friends and I said, when you go to your quiet place, and here's the answers I got this week, my car in a Walmart parking lot. This guy's a lawyer. He drives out of his office, he leaves his phone off, and he pulls into this Walmart parking lot as far away from everything as he can and he just sits there. He said he pulls, pulls his car so it doesn't look at the other people and he just sits out there and that's where he prays. Another friend of mine says, I walk the acreage behind my house. This mother, this is my favorite place. She said, I go into the laundry room and I shut the door because none of the men in my house have ever been in there. (laughs) Bravo. (laughs) Withdraw. Find a quiet place. Luke 5, 16. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I know this is a layup. It's an uncontested shot. But if he needed to, But some of us are going, I don't know when I withdraw. You won't get there doing it that way. What do you have to do? Say no to something so you can say yes to something more beautiful. And I've often said this, and I, I don't keep repeating myself, I just think it works. Some of us, when are you at your best? When I come home, I've heard my wife say this to both of my sons, leave him alone for a little bit. 
I come in the house and Braden's got a football and he wants to instantly throw a football and try to tackle me. And there are some days I wish he would tackle me and knock me out. And other days it's like, hey buddy, just let me go take my contacts out, let me change my clothes and then you and I can play in a little bit. And I get the, <sighs> when I taught in the college level, between 2 and 4 p.m., students love taking my classes because I have zero energy. I didn't, I had no, I'd walk in class and halfway through the class, I'm like, ah, that's good enough. See you guys. And they're like, we love you. And they'd run out of the classroom. 9 a.m., I'm ready to go. You're going to get all 55 minutes. It's going to be an absolute fire hydrant. I am ready to rock and roll. Do you know your best time of the day? How many of you are evening people? Your best thoughts, your, your head's clear, you're ready to go. I need hands. How many of you are morning people? 6 a.m. to 9 a.m.? There we go. I always like to ask college kids. They're like, there's a 6 a.m.? Yeah, there is. How many of you are vampires? From like midnight to 4 in the morning, you're at your best. It's okay. You're weird, but it's okay. So let me ask you this question. Has your spouse figured out your best times like Heather has mine? I mean, I, my best time is about a 12-minute block in any, any particular day. But when I hear my wife saying, just when he comes home, let him come back downstairs before we start asking him questions. And I kind of feel like, you know, I'm the museum artifact. But the truth is, I get it. And then when I come down, we'll all sit around and say, so how was your day? And off we go. When's your best time? Withdraw during that time. Do whatever it takes. Now practice integrity. If you're at work, work. But when you get a chance, and we'll talk about this in a moment, take a little bit, little tiny Sabbaths whenever you can get them. You're waiting for a phone call. You know that phone call's coming in 10 minutes and no one's in your office. What's the best time to sit down and just talk to God about where you're at? Go on Gateway Bible. Read the passage you're at. Listen, listen to some Bible teaching. You guys get this. I won't insult your intelligence. Proverbs 2, 4, and 5. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If I came home and said to my wife, all right, it's five o'clock, here's your 10 minutes. Oh my, that would not play well. And if I do that with God, and I have, then I wonder why it's empty and meaningless. But because I, the older I get, the more I'm a morning person, when the alarm goes off at 5.30, instead of cursing God, I wake up and I go, all right, no one else is up. I can have the next 30 minutes sitting downstairs, reading off my iPad, my passage of scripture, I can write in my prayer journal, and I wake, and when the family comes downstairs, I'm less grumpy, I'm more focused, my head is cleared, I love it. Withdraw. Second, wait. Hebrews 2.1, I will station myself. And if I understand the Hebrew word correctly, and I believe that I do, the word station has a patience quotient to it. I won't be in a hurry. I'm going to spend some time here, and I'll show you what that means in just a moment. Um, this is uh, said by, uh, uh, oh my goodness. Okay, here's the quote. I'll remember who said it in a second. He's the Indian relationship doctor, uh, Deepak uh, Chopra. He said, hurry is the death of any relationship. And when I think about damaged relationships I've been in, hurry has been one of the contributing factors. Not enough time to just talk. Instead, you have to handle stuff and move quickly. So why, why do we find prayer and waiting on the Lord difficult? Because we're suppressed by our obligations, right? We have too much to do. I don't have time to pray. Then you've dangerously, you have an imbalanced life that's very dangerous. Second, we become suppressed by our inadequacies. 
Don't be surprised when you sit down to listen to the voice of God that you don't hear words that sound like this. After what you've done, or the reason God's not talking to you is because you're creepy. And God will never forgive you for what you did. And all of that hinders our ability to sit still and wait on the Lord. One of the most beautiful passages, I think, in the entire Old Testament that's being revealed to me more and more is when David has a sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember the scene? And the baby becomes ill, and David prays and fasts, and he falls on his face before God over the baby, and Nathan comes out, and they tell David that the baby died. What I would do is I would hide myself from God because I'm the cause. And I would, there's no place for me with God. I've blown this. I've been uncovered. I'm a mess. What did David do? He went right into the temple and he worshiped his God. David drew into God instead of ran away from God. I think sometimes in my prayer life, I talk myself out of God's love. And that's not a truth. That's not from God. So wait. Could you wait on God seven days? If you woke up and gave God time and you sat there and God did nothing for seven straight days, could you wait? When you wonder what the answer to that question is, I want you to think of what uh, Moses had to do when he went on the mountaintop and he was there for 40 days before God said a word and even showed up. I think, if I may, and I may be attributing more of a personality to God than I biblically can justify, but there's a part of me that wonders if God doesn't sometimes make us wait because it's just flat out good for us. And I wonder how many times we don't know the presence of God because we left five minutes before he came. He's not being ornery. But sometimes worship means wasting time with God. And that's where we get the balance. Because then we find out what's really actually important. So Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I rest in God's provisions. One of my favorite expressions in the world, no playing around, is at dinner when someone reaches across, grabs a check, and says, I got it. Because, truthfully, it reminds me of God. Every time this happened in my life, I have forced myself to thank God for the many times he's reached across and took the bill for my choices and said, I got it. I love that moment. So when you all have been kind to me, uh, recently I went through Culver's, I pulled up, went to the window, I ordered my chicken, Braden got his double cheeseburger, he got his cheese curds, happiest kid in America, he's got his root beer, we're driving home, I pull out, my credit card, and I'm like, it's just Braden and I, bachelor's night out. I cook with a credit card, just for the record. And uh, we were having dinner, and I went to put my credit card, and this cute little college girl at Culver's goes, uh, the guy in front of you already paid. I have no idea who that was. But I could offer a prayer on the drive home that night, going, God, that is exactly what you do for me every single day. And for all those times I've never said thank you, thank you. It's being aware of God's provisions, and that only comes by slowing down the noise. All right, third, watch. This is where some of you are going to go, okay, you're getting a little bit weird with this. But I'm just going to teach you what the conviction of the Scripture and experience with God seems to lead me to believe. What does it mean to watch? Hebrews 2.1. I will look to see what he says to me. Okay, are you ready for this? How many of you, when praying about something or sitting in a place of worship or in a Bible class or having your quiet time, you, you feel this impression upon your heart to do something and you can see yourself doing it. Have you had that moment in your life where you're praying about something and all of a sudden you can see it happening before your eyes and you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Do you know that that's biblical? Old men will 
dream dreams, see visions, young men will, right? One of the prophecies of the Holy Spirit is that he will show you stuff. Do you remember when Paul said in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the eyes of your heart? Now, I don't want you to go crazy. You know, God gave me a vision to do this. Be very careful when you represent God. Okay, because most of the visions I find in the, in the Bible were not given to us to go broadcast how holy we are because we received them. Most of the visions given in the Bible were simply to call one person to act obediently by faith. But it's okay to watch and see what God says. I have had moments that you call it deja vu, but I'll be praying and someone's, someone I hadn't thought of for months will come up and I'll just pull up my email and I'll write them an email about, I'm just praying for you today. I've been thinking about you to get a wonderful email back in a couple of hours going, you can't believe what a good day this was that you prayed for me. That wasn't my idea. I was praying and your face showed up and I'm learning through time, respond to that. Sometimes I've sent people emails and they're like, oh, that was weird, I'm good. <laughs> Sweet, even better. I'll celebrate your good. But you get it. Watch. Have you, have you done that with your children? Hey, look. I wonder sometimes if God's not trying to say to us, slow down, sit. If I don't say anything for 30 minutes, just look around and see all I've given you, all that I'm blessing you with, so you know when times get hard, I'm right here. And several times, and I'll be quick, Jesus used this expression. I believe it's, if I understand correctly, six different times we hear in the New Testament the expression, watch and pray. What does that mean? Be observant of God's connection with you. Fourthly, write. I think you need to record the things that you feel led toward to be able to write them down and say, there's something coming up or there's, I need to pray for this person. In chapter 2, verse 2 in Habakkuk, he writes, the Lord gave me this answer. Write down clearly what I revealed to you. Now, I hope I'm not stretching that soup a little too thin because Habakkuk was to write this prophecy down for us to have in our Bibles. Little did he know at that time he was, but his prophecy was recorded. But I don't think it's a bad idea for us to journal. I like to go back and read two years ago today's date. And I open my prayer journal every morning, and it's fun for me to go back two years. And there's things I've written in there I would have forgotten I was feeling or, or going through or experiencing. And it's fun to look back and go, I forgot God delivered me in that. Some of it I open and I go, oh man, still battling that one. But in today's uh, world, I've got a journal on my iPad. I can journal on my computer. Some of you actually can journal with a pen and paper. It's amazing. I couldn't read it a year later, so I, I type everything out. But if you sit down to have a conversation, my wife will laugh at me because I'll pull my phone out and she'll give me that, and I'm like, no, you're telling me what you want from Sam's Club. So I jot notes because the worst thing I do is come home with five things she didn't ask for and I missed the two she did and I'm in trouble again. I'm like, I'm horrible. But I sit down and I take notes and I'm like, I'm getting older, I'm forgetting more and more and I'm writing these things down. I'm finding the value of having that. Does it make sense? So watch, write, and then fifth thing is worship. Worship the gift of his presence. I don't want you to feel belittled by this, but I, I was writing this afternoon. It was one of those things that hit my heart. I don't thank God enough for being available to me. Um, this happened recently. Uh, a friend of mine called me, and he always says, I know you're so busy. I'm not 
too busy for this. But he calls, he says, I know you're really, really busy. I said, I'm not that busy. What do you need? And he goes, I just want to tell you, thanks for picking up the phone. And I just felt like, that's so unnecessary. He so misunderstands my schedule. But his gratitude was very edifying. And in that conversation, I thought to myself, how many times do I just thank God that at any moment, no matter if I've been good or bad, I can say the word God, and he's like, yeah. I love that. Because most religions, you have to go to a place. You have to perform certain actions. You have to earn the ticket into the big room. Then you have to wait in line. And you're judged by all the other people waiting in line. People, aren't we glad that we've got a God who says, I am right here. We'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I think Satan doesn't want us to pray because uh, I saw this quote recently and I put it on Twitter. Uh, Prayer is uh, not magic. Prayer is warfare. It's a battle for your soul and the soul of everyone you love. And I thought that gives me impetus to pray more instead of simply wanting more. Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, now I've heard your report and I worship you in awe. So taking this from Howard Baker, who's an instructor at Denver Seminary, uh, he gave a seminar I was at on this, and so I've I've distilled it down to three major points that I want to make about what I think are finding balance in this world. When the demands of money and productivity and time and everything's heavy, what can we learn from this? First, claim the little solitudes that already exist in your day. Steal the time that's available to you. Use it well. Uh, The morning shower. I do some of my best praying in the morning shower. Uh, It's kind of funny. I have to shave my head and I have to shave my face. And so I stand there and it takes me about 20 minutes. And uh, as I'm waking up, I think, you know what? I woke up today and I feel well enough to stand here. And I'm in a place with hot water. I've traveled internationally enough to know we're spoiled rotten with that. I can brush my teeth with hot water, shave with hot water, take a shower with hot water, and go downstairs and make a cup of tea right out of my faucet. And I've been to places like I was just recently in the Dominican Republic. And uh, Adam Everett and I went. And we were there, and this family that was hosting us had been four days without water. When the pump can't draw water from the well, they wait till it can. And I stand in a 20-minute shower, and I think, thank God for this. International travel has opened my eyes. I asked some of my friends, what do they do with this? And they think it's funny. They said, there's multiple ways you can do this. One guy has a 70-minute commute. He says, on the way there in the morning, it's he and God. On the way back... He listens to worship music and sermons and Bible on tape, and he just replenishes. You guys can fill these in. I know. uh, Here's what came to my mind when I was writing this. What about the stay-at-home mom with four kids? I have no idea. (laughs) If you can get them all down for a nap, that might be the best worship you get all day. But some of you women who have been through that, we need to speak with one another. We need to share. Where do you find respite in the middle of the demands of this? Uh, Because, you know... The stay-at-home mom has the most time-absorbing job of anybody. And it's the most, one of the most godly occupations in the world. But finding solitude in that, I think sometimes the easiest answer for me, all joking aside, is to simply say to God, would you give me 10 minutes with you? A meaningful 10 minutes in the midst of all of this. And maybe your kids take a longer nap than normal. We'll see what God does with it. Uh, second, schedule your day more intentionally. Now, here's the piece that I always use with the kids at CIY when I talk about this. Stay up later or get up earlier. And I know that seems so unreasonable to a 16-year-old. Are you crazy? Yeah, I am. Because if you want God, it ought to cost you a sacrifice of some form. 
So stay up later or get up earlier. And uh, you get to choose that. Thirdly, slow down by saying no before saying yes. And this is where Heather laughed at me. My first response is, I would love to do that. Peter Buckland's asked me a question, well, why would you want to do that? And when I bounce my schedule off him, he helps set my feet back on balance. I want to try everything. Are you that kind of personality too? Someone says, hey, you ever thought of sky jumping? Yeah, let's go. Should you? I don't know. Say no before you say yes, because then you can always say yes. And uh, I think some of the best experiences I've received are by saying no to one thing, then having the time available to say yes to a greater thing later. Uh, probably the best piece of advice, very personally, is uh, in 2000, let me see, in 2003, I started a PhD program. And I was very excited about that. It was a challenge. And uh, we had Alex, and it was Heather and me, and Heather's like, if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it. And I started a PhD program, and I got through 16 hours of my credits, and I was starting the next semester, and my wife called me, and she said, guess what? And I said, what? And she said, I'm pregnant. I said, wow, awesome. I thought, uh-oh, I'm 39 years old. We got a second kid. Our other kid's already 11, so we're going to have two only children. Here we go. And I started looking at the hours that I was putting into my doctoral work and the price Heather and Alex were paying to give me the freedom of that. And I remember looking at Heather and I said, I, I came home and I didn't ask her permission because I knew what she was going to say. And I said, uh, I, I dropped out of the program today. And she said, why? And these words came to me from a friend. He said, answer me one question. Would you rather be a doctor or a dad? I want to be a dad. I said, then be a dad because you can't be both. And I, that struck me really, really hard, but I was like, and I vacillated all the money I'd put into it, all the time I had put into it. I got a nice email from my advisor saying, don't, you're gonna do this. And I went, I have zero regrets now. Sometimes when you say no, you say yes to this. I'm coaching a little 10-year-old football player. I don't know too many PhDs who get to do that. And I get to do it and I love it. It's about balance, isn't it? It's about saying, I want to make sure I'm using this time, my resources, my abilities to the best that God can honor me. You'll see the disciplines that I've provided here for you. Disciplines of freedom, disciplines of retreat, and disciplines of focus. Now, I'm not going to insult you by reading to you because I want to give time for any questions that might have come or any rebuttal from uh, Mr. Buckland here when we're finished. But I have provided for you out in the back an extensive explanation of each one of these. We didn't put them on your seat because some of you may not want to keep them. It's about three double-sided pieces of paper. We'll make as many as we need that if you want them. But I really encourage you to have, um, I really encourage you to take these because what it does is a really good explanation of abstinence. What does the Bible say about abstinence? What would it look like if I practiced that? What are the benefits the Bible says about that? So for some of you, if you're saying, I want to get some balance in my life, it goes back to where we started. This is about your soul, not just about your body. This is about measuring out the choices you're making. Because sometimes a good thing can become a bad thing when it's not done for the right reasons and for the glory of God. So the disciplines of freedom, abstinence, simplicity, and stillness. So I just want to do a little query. We're going to do this for these three sections, and Peter's got a question for us. Uh, of those three, I know this is awkward, but let's play our little game. When it comes to freeing yourself from the busyness of life, how many of you find that abstinence, saying no to one of your natural appetites, is, a very, is the most difficult of those three? I'm just doing a little survey of our crowd. Okay. 
How many of you find simplicity? Trying to just live a content life without a bunch of gadgets and a bunch of, okay. And how many of you is stillness? Slowing down enough to let somebody else like God speak. Okay, let's jump down to the disciplines of retreat and fortitude. How many of you find that meditation is a challenge? Meditation is taking a, a truth and thinking about it and processing it and spending time, okay? How many of you, it's prayer? How many of you, it's reticence, which is basically, you know, controlling your tongue? I don't know anything about that, okay? How many of it's about discipline of focus under these two? Stability, uh, waiting on the Lord patiently. How many of that's a great challenge? And how many of it's worship? Really taking your focus off of your condition and focusing on the eternal truth of God. So how do you get balance? Discipline. Make God-honoring choices with no shame. But my prayer is that every one of us, as we think about from truth to the value of people, to the value of our work, to how, what we do with our bodies, to how we spend our time, that you'll see that the whole connection we're building here is a challenge to every one of us to say, will I climb into the watchtower? Will I wait on the Lord? Will I watch what he tells me to do? Will I hold on and remember it? And then will I worship through it so that God can speak to me about every step he wants me to take in balance? We had one question that came, and it was uh, back at the time that you were talking about riches. And the question um, has to do with the charity of time and money. That's a really good way to put that, yeah. our donation of time and money. And said, uh, the question is, is it okay to donate more of your money and less of your time if it helps you to find balance? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I'm going to quote Mr. DeFazio back there. I'd really like to know kind of the inner workings of why. Because if the Lord has laid upon you that you need to invest your time, but it would be easier to write a check, then I'd ask you to take that to the Lord and clear that. Uh, an old-timer in the ministry, and uh, Charles Gwaltney used to say, Youngin, the problem with your generation is you throw a bucket of money at all your problems. And that stung. Because I was like, I don't have any money. But he said, you, you guys will do Instead of going and helping a widow de-weed her yard and cut the grass and clean up her property, you hire a bunch of people to do it for you. When really what she wanted was a bunch of people that would sit on her porch with her and, and chat. And, and I, I was like, okay, lesson taken. Now, what meets the need to the glory of God? Uh, when I tell Braden, hey, come help me clean the garage, I, he doesn't, he's not very helpful. Why do I want him out there? I just want to hang out with my kid. And I want him to take responsibility. And I want him to understand one day he's going to have a garage and here's certain things that your mother, your mother can't tell you that I can tell you about this, this, and this. So I think I would probably answer more generally and quickly with what is the need and which one meets the need in the most personal and real way. What's your reaction? Um, I, I think that that's a good way to look because um, I think sometimes it's easy for those of us that like to donate that we overlook the opportunity to be generous with our time. So actually what would be the best thing for the person and the best thing to help us to um, be able to live as good stewards of our time and live as good stewards of our money are really important things. And we just get another question. It says, uh, how, how do we determine between God's voice 
or my own thoughts. Yeah, that's stump the preacher time. Um, I work with college students, and this is one of their ongoing questions. So let me just crack the door open just a little bit, um, because this is a hard question. Some of you are more mystics than others, right? Some of you get more hunches and more perceptions about what God wants for you to do. But God has placed you in a community where you can test that out. So if it is, if what you are hearing is to obey the direct word of God, if you need to go apologize, or if you need to um, listen to somebody, or you need to um, study the scripture more, um, that is God plainly speaking to you. But we get into trouble if we believe that God wants us to go and do something that is not easily identified in scripture, like move to outer Slavovia and be a missionary. So when, when you get something in your mind that allows for you to live live out the kingdom ideals or live in the word of God, you're never supposed to do that alone. We always live in community. And so I think one of the things to do at that point is to get with the people who know you the best. And you say, hey, this is kind of what I'm thinking and feeling. Because sometimes we create our own desire to follow the Lord, and then we think of a really good idea, but it might not really be God speaking to us. At other times, God might be prompting us to do something, but generally speaking, we're going to need some support in order to get that done. So if it is directly related to the word of God and is doable by you, then you should go ahead and do it. But if it's kind of in that middle ground where you're not really sure, or you might think that God is asking you to do something new and big, I think it's good for you to go and ask somebody else, hey, what do you think about this? And what would this mean if I accomplish this for the Lord? I absolutely agree. I think you ask the people who know you best. Uh, I've had people come up to me and say, God's told me, I, I remember a young man who my first year teaching at the college came up to me and he was a fine young guy. He couldn't look at you in the eyes when having a conversation. He was really inarticulate. He was a wonderful young man, served his fingers off. But standing in my speech class, it was painful. It was painful for him, it was painful for us. And he told me that the Lord told him he was to preach. What do you do with that? I want to encourage a young preacher's heart. Someone did that for me, but there was no evidence from the fruit of his life. And one day, sitting in the office, a thought came to my mind, and I took the risk of asking it. I said, what do your mom and dad tell you about this? And he said, my dad said, I think you ought to go to Bible college, but let God show you what you're supposed to do. I thought that was some wisdom. And from that moment, I've always taken that if I feel like God's leading me to do something, I ask the people who know the real me, not the stage me, to say, does that sound like something that you see me gifted to do, something that God could bless through? Now, sometimes maybe they don't know. Maybe I get contradicting answers. Maybe one person goes, yeah, that sounds like you, and my wife goes, oh, no. I have to weigh all of that. I'll go back to a real simple cliche, though, and I'm, I'll build my ministry on this. The will of God is found in the Word of God. And sometimes people will come up with ideas. I've had, I've had people tell me, God told me to divorce my wife. You're a liar. You're a liar. You're listening to the lie of all lies. It's not what God told you to do. And I've got evidence to prove it. God wants you to restore and fix, but you're bought into a lie. And when the word of God speaks, it speaks. There's a permissive will of God, but sometimes God puts ideas and thoughts in our mind. When I went to Bible college, I went for reason A, and in the midst of that, God moved me to reason B. And I'm comfortable with that happening. But when people said, why'd you go to Bible college? I said, it's not to be a preacher. And God's like, really? And then I started asking. I said to my wife, 
president wants me to preach. Do you think I ought to preach? And she goes, well, you talk a lot. Com- confirmation. So the challenge for all of us is, I, I, I think when God speaks, he's going to bring people in community. Peter said that very well. The other thing is, open the word of God and ask, does the Bible support this or contradict it? It's the simplest way to do it. Whether it's an impression or a, a word you hear or a word someone speaks to you, be, if I may, be very cautious, however, about p- people who come up to you and tell you that the Lord has given a word to them about you. I'm always a little skeptical about whether that's true. I don't know that I find anywhere in Scripture, per se. There's a couple, but God will always affirm that in you. So if God's trying to get your attention through someone who speaks to you, get on your knees before the Lord and listen. I think God will affirm that too. I've seen some people messed up by a word of the Lord from a second party. I don't know if you've experienced that too, but it's, it's messed up some families in my experience. I have just a short devotional thought as we come to our close tonight based on what Mark was saying, and that is this. Um, when you look at a list of all of the different disciplines and particularly about the use of your time, spiritual growth occurs in your weakest areas. It doesn't mm-hmm. occur in your strengths because they're already strong. So if you spend all of your time in your strength areas, you'll still be unbalanced. So my encouragement to you tonight is as you look at this and you listen to Mark talk about the stewardship of your life, as you live it out each day and you get to choose how you spend your time, take a look at an area that you're not as strong in and give that area over to the Lord and say, over this next period of time, it might be three, four, five, six weeks, teach me how this can be an area for your glory, an area that I come back to more regularly, an area that becomes stronger. And you'll be able to track your ability to grow in that area. Um, If all you do is stay in your strength areas, then you'll still continue to be frustrated in the other areas. Along with that, you need to tell that to somebody and give them permission to ask you how you're doing. That's really what accountability is. It's you saying to somebody, hey, I'm working on this area, ask me how I'm doing. Because a new area will be something that you'll forget to do. It'll be something that you might get frustrated with, and you're going to need some outside encouragement to do a better job with that. So as you're sitting here listening to the Word of God convict you, take a look at maybe one thing that you could do. And recognize that as you grow in that area, there's going to be a lot of blessings that come from there. I want to give you a forecast of where we're going the next uh, two weeks, because I appreciate your faithfulness. This Sunday, we're going to talk about suffering, and I want to explain why in advance. Because through the process of what we've talked about, some of us have talked about truth, and we all have bought a lie. We've bitten the fruit, and we've paid the price. Some of us have crossed the line with our sexuality, that we have great regret and shame. Some of us have dealt with the issue of we've wasted our lives and there's all of those feelings. Why would I pile suffering on the top of that? Because sometimes suffering is the means by which God purifies. Well, in fact, the Bible says it's how God purifies us from those things. Next Wednesday night, Chad Ragsdale will be here and he's going to talk about something called theodicies. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible answer this question? Where's God when bad things happen to good people? If you want to know why people walk away from faith, it's when God doesn't meet their expectations. And we're going to talk about that next Wednesday night at a much deeper level. And then we're going to go on to something really light, like about resurrection the following Sunday. And then Michael and Chad are going to be on here in two weeks. 
and they're going to talk about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the real world. What is the evidence of it? What about a three days in the tomb? Was he really there three days in the tomb? We're going to talk about some pretty big ticket items. Bring a friend. Encourage people to come. We're just getting going. You guys are dismissed. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.